Howdy, I'm Nolan Gray, your friendly neighborhood city planner and research director over here at California Yembe, where we're hard at work making California an affordable place to live, work, and raise a family. Welcome back to Abundance. Can you believe it's already our 10th episode? And we have a really, really special uh, episode in store for you today. We're chatting with Emily Jacobson, a recent graduate of the Goldman School Master of Public Policy Program at UC Berkeley and the inaugural California Yembe Research Fellow. I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Emily has just published an amazing report published by California Yembe titled The Dysfunctional Metropolis, Reforming Los Angeles's Land Use Planning and Entitlement. Uh, in the first half of the episode, we spend a lot of time talking about what she found, about what has gone wrong with land use entitlement in Los Angeles. And then we pull it out and talk about the broader uh, implications for cities all across the country. We're joined in this episode by a very special uh, co-host, Sarah Karlinski, a senior advisor at SPUR, a public policy organization that works to create an equitable, sustainable, and prosperous Bay Area, a really, really fantastic organization. Uh, a little bit more on two things here. First, the California MB Research Fellow Program. This is essentially a program we created to support graduate and professional students to do work that advances uh, our mission of building a more affordable, equitable, sustainable California. Um, we have just had our first inaugural fellow, Emily Jacobson, who produced this report as part of her uh, uh, master's studies. If you're interested in this, uh, do head over to the website. We will soon be taking applications for uh, fall uh, research fellows. And if, like I say, if you're in a graduate program or a professional program, uh, we would love to hear from you. In the meantime, do feel free to send me an email. I'm at nolan, N-O-L-A-N, at C-A-M-B.org. We can check more about it. Uh, it's our 10th episode. Wow, can you believe it? We made it. Uh, we have a lot more exciting episodes in store for you. There are already two or three already uh, in the hopper, recorded, ready to go, and we have so many more coming. Uh, please take a moment, hit subscribe, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, hit that subscribe button, leave a review, help more people find uh, what we're doing here. And of course, uh, re leave a review, let us know who you want us to talk to. Um, anybody that you know you you think actually could uh, be a great guest to sit down and have a one hour, two hour, three hour long conversation about the ideas that are going to build a more affordable California. We want to know who you want to hear from. Uh, with that, we have a lot to talk about. On to the show. This is somewhat of a special episode. Uh, very excited. Uh, our inaugural research fellow at California Yembe, Emily Jacobson, joins us to discuss her new report on uh, the dysfunctional city uh, and what's gone wrong with Los Angeles City Council. And we're joined by Sarah Karlinski, of course, of Spur. We all we, we're, we have our organizational backgrounds that we're repping, right? Um, <laughs> Emily's got the plants. Um, so, like, I guess Emily's, thousand, the, Emily's yeah. the urban growth boundary. We're the it <laughs> perfect. It's because I couldn't choose between. Uh, I couldn't choose between my California UMB and Spur loyalties. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, so. Yeah, I mean, thousand feet. Most people, I think, in California, kind of know the situation with LA. But it, you know, I don't know if you want to sort of top line Emily. Sort of, there's been a lot of controversies recently of like every possible variety with LA, um, and a lot of them touch on entitlement. I don't know if there's like any particular that stick in your mind that like are important to like understand like why we're having this conversation now. Yeah, so you're right that there has been a lot of controversy. I think in the past five or so years, there's been four council members charged with um, you know, charges related to corruption. 
the one that stands out the most is Jose Wissad, who was a council member for, I think, the full 12 year um, term he could have. And he was the chair of the Planning and Land Use Management Committee. And he was able to, through that power that he held as the chairman, extort, um, and this is, uh, I believe he's admitted to that and pled guilty, up to $1.5 million from developers by saying, um, in a pay-to-play scheme, if you don't pay me X amount, either through cash or a gift or a political campaign donation um, or donation to a, a local nonprofit, like a, a private school, that he wouldn't allow the, the project to go forward. Um, and he did that successfully for several years, I think 2013 to 2018. And when that broke and it came out that the FBI was investigating him, I think it it really just dis disrupted a lot of people's you know trust in government. It in the city government, and that has only continued. Um, you know, most recently in October 2022, there was the leak of the um, recording, which three council members used a lot of pretty important language. Um, but talking more about the redistricting process rather than entitlement. Yeah, I mean, I, so I think a lot of people, if they know about zoning at all, most people, right, of course, live happy, normal lives where they don't think about this stuff. But if they like are aware of zoning, like I think the idea is, okay, you follow the rules on the books, uh, you crack open the zoning ordinance, you figure out what you can and can't do with your lot, and then you go get your permit, right? Um, and like, I mean, I think that's what an average person is wondering, like, why would somebody like Hoizar have so like, how could they be in a position where they could actually extort or or enter some, maybe extort is a strong word, mutually agreeable, but uh, highly illegal arrangement, right, to get these permits? Like, what's why? What's going on there? Yeah, that's, I think it's good to be, to not say extort or, but I mean, that's, I think that's the legal language. So I feel okay. comfortable using it. <laughs> um, or racketeering. Uh, in Los Angeles, about 75% of projects go through a discretionary entitlement process. Um, and that means that to be approved, the project isn't just being checked for, does this fit zoning? Does this meet code? Um, it has to be decided on an individual basis by some city decision makers, usually appointed or elected. Um, and so when we talk about entitlement, we just mean the approval process by which the city says, okay, sure, you can use this land for the proposed purpose. Um, and in Los Angeles, there are so many different types of entitlement applications, um, which is kind of crazy, but just taking a, like a, a large scale residential project, um, that might have to get a rezoning, that might have to get a change in the height district. Um, and at the very least, it'll have to go through this thing called site plan review uh, because it has 50 or more units. Um, but if any of those things are true, the project has to go through this discretionary process um, where it goes to, after it of course initially goes to the planning department and then after that to the city planning commission were appointed um, and then in Los Angeles it goes also to the city council um, and the city council ends up becoming the ultimate arbiter on um, a lot of decisions related to 
to projects both res residential and not. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think there's a couple interesting things in there that are important to like pull out is like the I, the original idea of discretionary entitlement would be like in, in rare or exceptional cases, right, where something just certainly in the cases of variances where it's like there's some unusual condition with the lot or there's just been a mapping error. We put your lot in the wrong zoning district, um, right? Like, I mean, my understanding of the original idea of these pathways was that these were for exceptional cases or weird cases or, um, you know, when conditions have changed rapidly. But I mean, it's as, as you sort of point out in your report, this has just become the almost the normal way that LA entitles anything and everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there are, of course, a lot of projects that should go through discretionary review. Um, you know, maybe a massive uh, a mall or a stadium or, you know, there are things that do have significant impacts on the land and the people who, who live in that area. Um, you know, things related to the airport, maybe. Um, so, there's there's definitely room and for discretionary approval and it's important that it exists. Uh, but what happens in LA is that the rules are so strict that so many things end up going through discretionary um, in a way that's kind of arbitrary or um, you know, is kind of nonsensical. Um, so like I mentioned site plan review earlier, any residential uh, property with more than 50 units has to go through discretionary review. And that threshold is, and granted there is a little bit of wiggle room that they've carved out some exceptions um, in recent years, um, but you know, it doesn't make any sense that a project with 55 units would be more harmful to the environment or to the community than the project with, with 49. Um, and, um, the other reason that a lot of projects have to go through discretionary review is just that the zoning and the plans in LA are pretty outdated. Um, and it's the zoning itself is restrictive. And as LA and all of California faces this housing crisis and really needs to build a lot more multifamily housing, um, they're coming up against zoning rules that uh, you have to get exceptions to, um, to be able to build the, the things that are kind of necessary. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's two, I moving into like the recommendations here, right? Like, I think you point out really rightly, so there's two issues here. One is a bunch of projects just get forced to go through discretionary permitting. And yeah, this was something that shocked me when I came to California, like the, the idea of a discretionary process for otherwise completely compliant projects just because they cross some unit threshold um that like is not how a lot of other jurisdictions do it that's that's really weird and especially impactful in the california context because when you become when you have to do discretionary permitting you have to do sequa which you know i don't want this to be like everybody beating up on sequa as usual but like that's a problem right because then that opens you up to litigation and at best you have to do this big giant study and it just makes it really, really hard for small developers to 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 do these types of projects. But you, you point out too many projects get thrown into this universe. And then when projects are thrown into this universe, like the process is just kind of messy and chaotic. Like there's a lot of appeals processes. There's, um, you know, 
many applications that end up in the council are going to get politicized. Um, yeah, I think another thing that most listeners probably are aware of is um, goes by different names in different cities. Uh, council manic, council manic uh, privilege, isn't that what it's called in LA? Yeah, that it is. Yeah. Um, so council manic privilege or prerogative, um, you hear about a lot in the LA context and also in Philadelphia and Chicago, um, where it's, I guess, aldermanic privilege. And the idea is that the um, council member who represents that district has almost full say in what gets built in their district. And all the other council members defer to the local council member. Um, so for example, in LA, um, a developer who wants to build a project will go to the council member's office before they even submit um, an application to the planning department because they need to find out if the local council member will support that project. Um, and if they don't, then it's almost kind of dead in the water and they, they don't move forward with the application or they, they make some, some kinds of alterations to make it um, you know, minimal to the local council member. Uh, but just the fact that the local, the local council member has so much say in what gets built is I think pretty extraordinary. Um, and that's especially true because LA is a city of 4 million people and there's only 15 council members. So each person represents over 250, 260,000 people, which is bigger than a lot of towns and counties and um, across the country. And so you hear a lot about LA that um, it's like 15 fiefdoms or 15 mini mayors. And I think a lot of people do view the council that way and, and how they're able to um, have this high level of discretion over over everything that happens in their their district and especially with development. Yeah, you know, so on the the fifteen fiefdoms piece, right? I, you know, there is a lot of reform discussion right now. One that seems to always get a lot of attention is expanding the council. Um, how do you feel about that? Like what? Yeah, um, I think in general, I sort of apart from development, <laughs> it could be a good idea. Um, it is kind of crazy how big the council districts are in LA. It's bigger than any other city in the country. Um, so there, un I understand why people are are talking about that and um, you know considering it as a potential reform. But in terms of uh, development, if you don't change the, the culture of councilmanic privilege. I don't think expanding the council would have an impact. Um, you know, it remains to be seen, but I would expect that, you know, if it continues to be districts and in solely districts, maybe no at-large um, council members or multi-member districts or anything like that, um, the local council member might continue to still have a lot of say over what happens in their in their district and um, and still be the ultimate decision maker. And with smaller districts, you might expect them to be more homogenous um, for there to be um, you know a stronger link between constituents and their their council member, which is those are that second point especially is good, but it allows for more nimbyism. 
um, if people in that district don't want a project, uh, it's even more likely that the council member would um, would say no to that project and it would ultimately not go anywhere, even if it was, um, you know, would have citywide impacts or have benefits for people across the city. I actually had a question about that. First of all, I just want to compliment you on your excellent report and everybody should read it and it's really terrific. Um, and I, yeah, I had a, a lot of thoughts, uh, a lot of thoughts while I was reading it about sort of the San Francisco context and kind of comparing that to the Los Angeles context and, and some other places too that maybe we can get into later. But just on the topic of um, kind of the structure of governance um, in Los Angeles and um, kind of the, the relationship of, I had a number of questions about the relationship of council authority vis-a-vis -vis mayoral authority. Um, so maybe my first question is sort of about whether Los Angeles, is it a strong mayor system? I mean, you talked a little bit about when council can override, a, you know, the mayoral veto or when mayor can override council. But I just was uh, wondering if you could get into that a little bit more um, is sort of one set of questions that I had. Um, and then the other, I just was totally fascinated when you said that so many of the council decisions are unanimous because in San Francisco, the political dynamic is totally different where um, you have, well, we're both a city and a county, so we don't have a city council, we have a board of supervisors, but there's just like a lot of um, politicking um, between different supervisors who sort of fall into different political camps and then various fights between them and the mayor. Um, we have a very strong mayor system in San Francisco, but it just seems like there are multiple different kind of power bases. So you don't get that unanimity that you describe in Los Angeles, which maybe is in the LA context is much more because of the um, the councilmanic privilege that you describe and sort of it's like, I was like, oh, it's almost like, or it's like an orderly system. It's just like a corrupt system. So <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about that. And then my second question is just, I was very curious about who appoints the planning commissioners. That was one question that I had while I was reading. So those maybe just, we could start there. Yeah, those are all great questions. And I'm glad you asked them. Um, Los Angeles has a weak mayor system. Historically, um, the the council has been the main uh, policymaker, or um, it's the legislative body, but it has been um, most influential in setting policy for the city since its founding. And I do, it's fair to say that there have been some reforms to make the mayor of Los Angeles stronger and have more authority in recent years, but um, I think the council continues to be very strong and especially with land use development and entitlement. And um, I think I forgot the second question. Was it about? Um, well, it was about who appoints the planning commissioners. Um, is oh, it, yes. Yeah. Sorry. No, the, the question I forgot is about the um, uh, unanimity of council decisions. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is. This was also really shocking to me. Um, there's a paper that came out um, that showed that 97% of votes by the Los Angeles City Council are unanimous. And, and that's because um, basically everything is decided in committee. So once it reaches the full council, 
they will just vote yes to approve the recommendation issued by the committee. So um, I think this is probably something that's pretty unique about Los Angeles. Um, I can't speak to other cities, uh, but each committee, most of them have five members, are really powerful. And so when we're talking about land use, that means that the people on the Plum Committee, which is planning and land use management. So which apologies. by the way is the most amazing name for a committee that has <laughs> a lot of power like this to like dole out <laughs> discretionary <laughs> approvals. As you're literally sitting on the plum committee, it's um it's kind of it's a little much. It's a little it's on a the nose. little on the nose. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's also just like a cute name. Um sounds a lot better than planning and land use management committee. Um but uh that's all to say that the the council members who are on that committee um, almost, um, I don't want to say single-handedly, but as a collective set the direction for um, for land use across the city and, and rarely is there um, any kind of um, disagreement on the council floor at least. Maybe it happens behind doors, um, but it's, yeah, it's a lot of unanimity. So and then, oh, go ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I didn't say to your the last point about who appoints the um, commissioners. They're all appointed by the mayor, and um, so this is where the mayor exerts control is through their appointment process. And um, they're just to say this upfront. Uh, Los Angeles has a city planning commission that oversees the whole city, so that's a pretty standard but it also has seven area planning commissions and those commissioners are also appointed by the mayor. Um, and, but those area planning commissions oversee a smaller geographic area. Um, and of course there are seven of those. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that was fine. I mean, it's, it is very interesting when I think, um, when I think about, again, the San Francisco context, um, there is a land use committee, but what the land use committee do does is reviews it, um, usually legislation related to land use, including zoning legislation. So it's like sort of plan scale um, development that they're that they're looking at. Um, and yeah, so it's just it's just kind of a different system. I mean, San Francisco is also very different from LA because. Um, it's roughly 800,000 people and LA is what 4.3 million and just the square footage is just the scale of Los Angeles is just totally different. Um, and then thirdly, San Francisco is a strong mayor system. So like there's a lot of authority consolidated within, within the mayor. Um, but the, but the board of supervisors does exercise significant, um, control vis-a-vis -vis these discretionary entitlements because of their capacity to hear CEQA appeals and their ability to, you know, they're the legislative body that votes on, you know, zoning changes. So back when we were doing more area plans, um, they had, they played a very significant role in, um, you know, approving or disproving those. And, and now there's more citywide planning that happens. It's less sort of area by area, at least in the San Francisco context. Well, and, and you know, I think you, you get at this in your report. An, another challenge that LA, you know, not to 
riff on the obvious fact, but LA is just really big, right? And there's a lot of different contexts. And to my mind, the important, a really, really important thing to understand about why we ended up with the institutions we have is that like people have been trying to leave LA, right? Like a lot of the current framework emerges in the aftermath of the San Fernando Valley trying to, you know, secede from LA. So we get things like neighborhood councils and area planning commissions, right? That that comes in that wave, right? Yeah, it did. Um, and in I think there's been two major waves of reform that have gotten us to this place. And one is from roughly like the late 1960s through the 80s, um, which was a period where uh, members of the community wanted a lot more um, control over what was happening in their in their neighborhoods and across the city. And so there became a lot more opportunities for public participation, which is good, um, but it also made, um, it resulted in a system where council members and commissioners in the planning department were really responsive to what people who were already in that neighborhood wanted to see, um, which is sort of the root of NIMBYism is people who already live there saying, um, I don't want my neighborhood to change. I don't want, um, you know, you people or, or something to to move in here or disrupt how things are. Um, and that went through, so this, this period of increased local control, and I would say peaked kind of in, in 1987, I think, which was when Proposition U was passed, which significantly downzoned a lot of Los Angeles, basically most of the com commercial corridors by half. And it just made it so much harder to, um, to build anything in those areas or, or change them from what form they were in in the, in the 1980s. Uh, and also I'll add that I think in around 1970, the city changed to having community plans. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of like the area plans you were talking about in, in San Francisco, Sarah. Um, there are 35 uh, community plan areas in Los Angeles, and those those areas geographically haven't changed since they were first established. Um, but planning is done on a um, neighborhood basis, and these plans are um, not updated as nearly as often as they should be. Um, they just the the council just passed the new Hollywood community plan, I think, last month. But if I remember correctly, that plan hadn't been updated since the 1980s um, or 1990s. So a lot has changed in, in Hollywood um, in 30 years. Uh, but those are a couple of things. And then lastly, um, about the San Fernando Valley wanting to secede, that, was, that threat happened in the late 90s. And in response, the, the city developed and passed a new city charter so for a few years, there was a lot of effort and a lot of community members who were involved in and setting the direction for the, the new city charter. And they, they did talk about things like um, expanding the council, which of course didn't happen then. Uh, and then the voters approved it in 1999. And so most of the, the structure of land use planning in LA was, um, is set in, the, in that 1999 city charter. And it is what established the neighborhood councils, which are a 
quasi-judicial, uh, kind of quite, I don't know what to say, quasi-administrative, quasi-political um, body. There are 99 of them in Los Angeles, and any person can say, we're going to develop a, a neighborhood council as long as it doesn't geographically overlap with another one. And these groups get to issue um, statements to the council, basically offering recommendations or stating their position on certain things. And today it is a, a major way that members of the public are able to, to get involved and express their preferences to the, to the council. And Nolan, um, famously a, uh, a board member of the North Westwood uh, neighborhood council. Did I get that right? That's right. Yes. Th thank you. Thank you for, um, you know, reminding everyone of my credentials here. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, there's such weird entities. We had something like this in New York, they're called community boards. Um, and in, in New York, there are 59 of them and they have 50 members. So it's a little bit of a circus and they're all like appointed by the BP, the borough president and the council member. Um, yeah, in, in LA, yeah, you mentioned they can form kind of out of any existing area. The Northwestwood Neighborhood Council actually was formed because we, a coalition of students and Westwood business owners broke off from the Westwood Neighborhood Council um, to form an entity that was a little bit more favorable to, you know, small business permitting and student housing construction. Um, yeah, I mean, they're they're just, they're weird entities, right? Because they, they don't have any formal, like, power on land use, but they get to you know, I, I believe applicants are required to come and present uh, to the neighborhood councils and neighborhood councils can issue advisory decisions. And of course, my neighborhood council was great and we only did good things. Uh, but many of these, you know, I think as as you suggested previously in your comments on NIMBYism, like they kind of get captured by people who don't have like, you know, a randomly selected set of preferences on land use and development and transit in their communities. Um, yeah, I want to- That's absolutely right. That, yeah. um, when there have been some studies that looked at the membership of neighborhood council boards and it was extremely not representative of the population of Los Angeles and its diversity. Um, it's kind of who you would expect. Older people, homeowners, um, people with higher incomes and with higher levels of education. And um, what happens is those are still the people who end up getting to speak for the residents in their neighborhood and say that this is what we want when maybe that isn't the case. Yeah, and they're technically elected too, but the elections aren't like in tandem with citywide elections. Like you have to like, I think you had to physically go to vote for some of these. Like you have to physically be present. Like, you know, I don't want to glamorize it, but like New England style, like if you're not physically present at the meeting, you didn't get a vote on who was on this. There, we could go down a whole rabbit hole on those. Something that like surprised me in your report is so I I would be you know I always assume that like council members kind of love this power right like it, it, it all every applicant has to come and like you know a genuflect and 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 you know kiss the ring right and and maybe mm -hmm. make some campaign donations but something that you picked up on is that like you know there's candidate surveys and there's interviews with former council members and I, I was surprised by the degree to which they don't really seem to want these powers like I don't know you know what do you what do you think is going on there like is that is that accurate and like why would why would council members not be like yeah this is awesome like I love this power yeah I think you're referencing one of my favorite quotes in the paper which is from um, Eric Garcetti when he was mayor and 
who had been a council member for, I think, the full 12 years before that, uh, where he said in an interview that, um, I'm going to butcher this quote, but basically that you would think that the council members love that everybody has to come kiss the ring and, um, you know, yeah, you refer or uh, give the council members that level of discretion, but that in fact they hate it um, and that it, it takes up a lot of their time. It requires them to issue um, opinions on all sorts of little things that maybe they don't really care about. And um, just to clarify, it's not always the, the actual elected council member who is making this decision or in the meetings with the developers. Um, more often than not, it's a high-level staffer or their, their planning director. Um, but in terms of the candidate survey in 2022, uh, the LA Times did a, a survey of everyone who was running for um, city council positions or also um, you know, mayor, um, controller, various positions. And one of the questions they asked was, should uh, LA reduce the power that the council has over land use decisions? And the vast majority of people said yes, um, that there should be a reduction or um, a, it's a, a, a repositioning of um, who holds the power in, in deciding land use um, issues. That is surprising. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought, I mean, again, I just am thinking about San Francisco, which is a very small pond with a lot of very big fish in it. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't talked to all of the supervisors about it, but I think they enjoy utilizing the powers and the capacities that they have to shape land use within their particular um, district. But, but I can also see, because as you described, like the districts in LA are so big that they're having to weigh in on, you know, all kinds of different relatively small matters. It, and when you start taking positions on certain things, you make friends, but then you also make enemies and you can like unnecessarily end up making enemies about something you don't actually care about so much. So I could, I could see how that would be mm -hmm. not yeah. for them. I do think that's what's happening is I'm sure that they do want to shape the the future of their district by making these big decisions, getting um, a new ballpark or a new mall or like, um, you know, things like that, that would be kind of exciting to the average person and are, um, you know, they make headlines, people pay attention to them. I imagine that the council members do uh, like to weigh in on those things, but when it comes to any any moderate size apartment building with 50 units, I can't imagine that they care a ton about every single one of those that's being proposed in their district. Um, so I'm I'm issuing my own um, position on that. Or, um, I'm projecting a little bit, but uh, yeah, I think the other thing in terms of weighing in on issues that might be controversial is sometimes these projects are are held up or they're facing uh, labor disputes um, between um, you know building unions and they obviously just want the best for their um, their members, but if it's if a council member is now between issuing a statement in favor of a labor union or in favor of um, a neighborhood association in their district, it's 
that could be complicated that you are um, inadvertently siding with one group over another, um, you know, giving, you know, depending on the specifics of the project. Yeah, so I, I, I guess I'm like thinking through this a little, like in certain districts where you have a really robust like base in one direction or the other, right? So maybe you have totally consolidated an MB power in one district and totally pro-growth sort of coalition interests in the other. But council members who are in districts that where there's a division, right? Like that, this must be like just a, a source of like unpleasant decisions. Um, I always think of, uh, I mean, the greatest cultural artifact on like local housing politics, show me a hero, right? Like the whole, I hope everyone has seen this. And if, if you haven't, it's amazing. Like the we put we put elected officials kind of in these impossible positions where it's like you have to do things that are like they're no win scenarios for you politically. Um, maybe that's what's going on. They're like I think what you're getting at is like there are there are divided interests on all of these issues, and they're so small fry, and they're not the type of thing that people go into like public service to like be you know exactly was that rendering decisions on like a seventy five unit apartment building, right? Yeah, absolutely, and. Because the districts are so big, it, it really isn't the case that any one of the council districts is homogenous in terms of their, their views on land use. And um, I'm sure in every district, there are some people who are, are more NIMBY and more, or more YIMBY or just responsive to the, the specifics of any project, right? Um, and I think this comes up a lot in, in areas that are historically neighborhoods of color or lower income where those areas are gentrifying and, um, you know, market rate or mixed use buildings are being proposed and a district that does need more housing and they want it, but maybe they don't want it there or there's displacement or things are just complicated. And so I think, um, yeah, housing policy is always going to be complicated. <laughs> I feel like if I've learned anything from writing this is um, there's a lot of opinions on any project and um, most people are are right in some way. It's yeah, I mean, what I find with with that, at least in my experience, is that there are these incredibly large forces at play that impact people's lives, and some of them can be adjudicated through zoning and land use powers, and others can't. But when there's like a physical manifestation of something you know, in the form of a, a building. Like I, I can just take, for example, I remember in an area plan that San Francisco is trying to pass, you know, I remember sitting through a conversation about um, whether um, uh, pharmacies like Walgreens should be allowed by right um, because there were some people who are like, well, I can't get uh, my you know, discount prescription medications through pharmacies like, like Walgreens, like they're not, you know, a local friendly pharmacy that would have a relationship with me that would provide me the discount that I need. And I just was like, my God, you know, the whole issue of like the affordability of prescription medication is trying to get adjudicated through a local discussion about land use and it's just in it's insufficient these authorities are just insufficient to deal with the problems that people are facing um and then i feel like you know through these conversations about um or battles frequently about whether new 
housing is um, exacerbating or alleviating displacement, you know, they they get fought build, building by building by building, but really they're sort of a collection of, I mean, first of all, a collection of um, many, 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 many decisions about land use altogether that can't be um, mitigated or solved or made worse potentially through a single building, but it's like the collective set of decisions have led us to this point, you know, but people are fighting about the the thing in front of them that they can see. Um, and it's sort of, it's heartbreaking, actually, you know, all these things that people want to actually be able to impact, like economic inequality, the um, the loss of manufacturing jobs, um, the, the, these big, big um, sweeping trends that vastly shape people's lives. Um, they end up fighting about them through a local land use battle. Um, yeah, and it's sort of it's like it like I said, it's it can be really heartbreaking to see that because it's like that's not gonna solve the problem that you're trying to solve, you know. Um, but what are the other ways you can solve those sets of problems? It's sort of hard to it feels diffuse. I mean, I think this is a really, really, really good point. I think that like we, you can't really understand like what's going on with current zoning without understanding like it's this kludge for so many other issues, right? I mean, this came up in the parking context of like AB twenty ninety seven. Let's get rid of parking mandates near transit, and you're like, okay, cool. Like any any reasonable planner will say, yeah, good idea. Get rid of your parking requirements near transit. No disagreement there. But the disagreement over over the bill was like, well, but we use this to like force developers to the table to negotiate for other things. So if they want to get out of parking, we force them to come to the table to do like more affordable housing or local hiring or yeah, I mean, sort of weird pseudo industrial policy at the local level, right? And it's like, well, so that's, those are interesting and important things to be doing at the policy level. But like, it's weird that we, we end up doing this through this like project by project negotiation. Um, I had Rick Cole on recently and he he I think he introduced a resolution uh when he was on the Pasadena Planning Commission to rename it to the Reacting Commission right because it's like so much like planning capacity just gets put into like not like forward thinking big picture okay what do we want this community to look like as as Emily mentioned like these community plans haven't been updated in 40 years in some cases but like we just react whenever something gets proposed and I mean even even if there are things that you want to do with that framework it's just like a deeply like dysfunctional kludge that you know ideally we're actually sitting down and doing planning and thinking through the policies and having it apply universally yeah i i also think it's like there's so many layers right there's like california tax policy which we haven't hit on but i mean part of why you know part of what you describe in these i don't remember how you just i don't know if it was extortion or shakedowns or you know these these um decision making processes with local plans where you know uh neighbors might actually get like an actual cash payoff like that's sort of like one matter but if you're looking at the plan level scale and kind of the conversation about community benefits it's so heated because the resources are so stymied because of California's completely, to borrow a, a phrase from your title, like it's just the most dysfunctional tax 
policy that you could possibly have for a state. I mean, you talk about like the glory days of the state of California pre-Prop 13, where you could like actually pay for things and we were building things and we had great schools and all this stuff. And then post-Prop 13, now it's like, everybody's like at like fighting for scraps to provide the community benefits that are desperately needed to accompany um, any new growth or even to have like really wonderful, you know, cities, right? We need money for parks and we need money for money for schools and we need money to have great streets and we need money for affordable housing. And we, you know, we need all of this, all these resources and we have such incredibly limited tools to um, achieve those resources. And a big part of that is because of this tax revolt, you know, that happened in the 1970s where people are like, well, we're sick of our property taxes going up and we don't understand what, you know, we don't understand much about like the, um, or maybe it's a willful misunderstanding about like where tax dollars actually go and what they pay for. And so we're going to like pass this thing. And it's just had the ripple impacts on development in a, in a very devolved state like California have just, it's been, you know, it's, it's breathtaking. And then you have all these workarounds, all these workarounds. And so the people that I know that work in affordable housing, they're constantly trying to figure out like, how are we going to get more funding for affordable housing? Like how, what, what can we do? And the tools are just so unbelievably limited. Um, and it's a self-inflicted wound. I mean, I guess all of governance, you could see it that way, like things that are dysfunctional, they're all self-inflicted wounds that could be changed. Um, but it's it's really extraordinary. And then you think about, of course, that then you layer on what the federal government does and does not do to help address some of these um, challenges. And, and it kind of makes you want to move to a social democracy or maybe maybe me. <laughs> Well, I mean, like even short of social democracy, right? I was looking at this map of like, you know, local or revenue collected by property taxes. And it was like Texas, Illinois, New Jersey. And I'm like, these states have like kind of nothing in common, like politically, ideologically, you know, et cetera. But like, they all kind of build like way more than like their peer states. So like, you know, like Texas, New Jersey, Metro Chicago, like still build a lot, right? And I I expect it comes down to that fact of like, okay, well, we have a kind of, we, a new building gets built and like we get a whole bunch of new property taxes and we can use that money for fun things. And in California, we've said, well, no, you're not allowed to do that. So now you have to do this like weird project by project, like, you know, negotiation, but like squeeze some juice out of projects because we, 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 we think they're not going to pay their own way because they just can't pay normal property taxes after, you know, so many years. And it's like, yeah, just 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 do property taxes normal, right? Like just like let yeah. new development just pay for itself, and um, people will realize, okay, yeah, the new building got built. That I, you know, I don't like the traffic, but cool, we're getting a bunch of extra money. So, like just, that's like let that normal kind of governance process happen. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So we did a paper with California Forward, like maybe three or four years ago, where we looked at because of course Prop Thirteen when it capped the property taxes the the share of property taxes that each city gets are different. They're historic. And so some cities get a greater share of the property tax and some cities get a smaller share. And so we looked at whether that um, impacted 
how much housing was approved in different jurisdictions in the Bay Area. And generally it did. And I think that California Forward did, again, another study that just came out. I believe it might actually be about LA. Um, I'll see if I can find it. Looking at some of, kind of that same question of what share property taxes is captured and does that impact what um, what cities do? And it and of course it does. Of course it does. Um, so anyhow, just a, another big problem for um, you young people to figure out how to solve. I'll I'll sit by the <laughs> fire and and cheer you on. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of urbanists, if they were given a time machine instead of going back to like. I don't know, the 1700s or something might go back to the 1970s and prevent Proposition 13 from passing, given what we know now. Or maybe that's just me. Um, yeah. But um, it, in, no, go ahead. Oh, I just want to say you brought up Measure U, um, mm -hmm. sort of talking about time machines. And um, I mean, one thing we didn't talk about, and Nolan, this is something obviously you know super well, but just like sort of the framework for planning in California and how um, it's incredibly decentralized, like how the home rule power is just so strong. And so like each of these different jurisdictions get to make so many decisions to have such power over land use. Even now, after all the changes at the state, they still have incredible authority over what happens between, you know, in each jurisdiction. And then how, because um, because of everything, all the dynamics you talk about, Emily, in your paper, people's, you know, fear about growth and change and, you know, other sets of concerns, like the local decision makers are super responsive to their own constituents. Um, and so you, you can just see how like the slow growth movement made its way across the the entire state in like the 70s and 80s and I think measure U is sort of peak that um and um I, I just think it's like a re really important kind of context point for a lot of these discussions about about land use just this like desire for slow growth and then the use of ballot measures which is actually what your colleague Emma is, is studying for us now like we're making a catalog of all the local ballot measures that impacted um, whether um, housing can move forward in certain jurisdictions or not and it's really interesting to kind of see like how they were clustered over time and there's like many 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 in the 80s um, which sort of um, enshrine these slow growth um, principles, but it's, but it's shocking. And it's, it, I mean, LA is the largest city in California. It's sort of shocking to know that there's this measure that was like a slow growth measure in Los Angeles. I mean, that's like kind of extraordinary in and of itself. So I guess yeah. that's really a question. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I, I'm, I fully agree. Yeah. And I think the slow growth period era, if you can call it that, has really lasted until almost today. It's hard to say if we're in still in the slow growth period or if we're in a pro-growth era. I I think we are shifting into a a um a more pro-growth mindset that increasingly everyone is realizing we really need to build more housing if people are going to be able to stay here and afford to live here and um, I guess I'm I'm hopeful that people are increasingly going to 
you know, vote for measures, pass, you know, introduce initiatives that encourage housing production rather than stymie it. And um, we've seen that in LA in the past few years. Well, with groups like California Envy and Spur working on the issue, I mean, it's just a matter of years before we solve this thing. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, like there, there is a like, there are positive trends and I think that's really important and slightly underrated. Like, you know, it, it's a low baseline, but like LA is like hitting sort of recent, you know, a, a peak for permits issued for, you know, the past, I think 40 years or something. I mean, so like there is this surge in housing production that's happening mainly because of a big jump in ADU production, thanks Sacramento and the TOC program which I think, you know, I think you were kind of getting at that, like, you know, I don't know that voters necessarily knew that they were voting on like a pro-growth ballot measure there, but that's what it ended up being. And it created these sort of safe harbors from some of the stuff that you talk about in the report to say like, cool, like here's like, um, you know, much more streamlined ways to, to get the types of additional density that previously would have required you to go through this discretionary political process. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of Sarah, what we were talking about, like, okay, cool. Like you build a certain portion affordable, use a certain labor standard. Um, cool. Do it build. Like, we're not going to have this like project by project negotiation. Um, like here are the public benefits that we want. You check the boxes, you get your permits. Yeah. And you're, like you said, the TOC program has been really impactful. So that's the transit oriented communities. It's a, a TOD style program. Um, passed by voters in 2017, I think. Um, and the city planning department got to design the specifics, but I think voters did know when they were voting on it that it was to make it easier to build near transit. Um, so, but it's, yeah, it's, I don't think they could have imagined the, the form with all the specific incentives and everything built out. Um, but it has allowed a lot more, um, proposed residential projects to go through ministerial review or by right. I don't know if we even said this, but instead of discretionary, the other alternative is that it's um, eligible for ministerial review or just like check, 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 this fits zoning, you can build it. Um, and I, it, you wrote a paper on this, Nolan, um, with some other people at UCLA that shown that it speeds up housing production or entitlement and permitting by a lot. Um, and that's what we mean now is like urgency and, and speed at which things are entitled. Otherwise it takes years um, for a project to be approved and receive its permits before it can even begin construction. You know, Emily, one of the things I wanna say um, is I love the way you started this paper where you, you kind of gave the example of a of a developer and kind of what they like a smaller scale developer and what they would go through in the Los Angeles process. I thought that was really powerful because people don't often write from that perspective. So I thought it was just really interesting. And it's like, yeah, of course, if you're like somebody's just trying to build housing, like how would it feel to go through this discretionary process versus what would it feel like to go through a ministerial process? And um, I, I just thought that that was incredibly, um, evocative and like a really, really, really great way to, to start the paper. Cause it just illustrated this point so well. Um, you're like, oh yeah, why would I spend, you know, multiple years 
going through this like somewhat hellacious process to get to the exact same conclusion that I might otherwise get to w without, you know, this pain and, and suffering. And like, what is, what is the good of that pain and suffering? Like, what is that rock? Yeah. You know, what does that bring about? Um, yeah. I, I, just, I thought that was really good. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I will say that was probably the hardest part of the paper to write because it, I don't typically write fiction. <laughs> um, uh, but it was inspired by a lot of things I've heard from developers um, that they will choose not to propose a project unless they know it will be um, approved ministerially or approved by right. And mm. they just will completely avoid the discretionary process because they know it can take a long time they have to quote unquote kiss the ring of the local council member. It opens them up to appeals and lawsuits and CEQA and, and so on. Um, so yeah, I I appreciate the compliment and um, I put a lot of thought into what is a what's a typical experience or um, something that you could um, put yourself in the position of a, a small builder. Yeah. And then I have another compliment that I'd like to give to you, Nolan, um, which is about the the YIMBY movement, because I, I've been working in land use for, it's been over 20 years now, and I remember exactly the moment when I read about the YIMBY movement starting in San Francisco. And at first, I mean, I would just be completely frank, I thought it was a joke that anti-housing um, forces were playing on people who wanted housing to move forward like oh yeah new housing the idea of it makes you barf like that's literally what I thought when I read about it I was like they came up with a name <laughs> to sort of make fun of Spur and others who who want housing to move forward and then just to see what happened it was like um it was like letting off like a a fire like like just how many young people were like, no, this is ridiculous. And I was like, my God, yes, it is ridiculous. But I just always felt so, you know, alone in these hearings, feeling these feelings when I would, you know, be witness to, I mean, one thing we didn't talk about, but San Francisco, in San Francisco, every permit's discretionary. So I would sit through hearings where people would be, you know, be like three hours about somebody's back deck, you know, being transition to an addition or whatever and people be like wailing <laughs> these hearings and I'm like this is in this is madness this is literal madness um but kind of getting back to the to the Yimby movement I just like watching as all of a sudden there's this this um kind of force of of particularly young people just saying you know what like enough's enough. Like I want, I want my rent to go down and I want my friends to live here. And I, I want there to be more space for more people. Um, it's just been so powerful in terms of the change in the conversation, um, and has really led a lot of this change at the state level. And Nolan, you were just talking about, oh, ADU productions up. Thank you, state law. But like when I started doing land use, nobody, was like, oh yeah, we're gonna allow ADUs. Everybody's like, that's verboten. Like, we'll never get ADUs. Well, well, that will never happen. Like, homeowners will never allow that to occur because it's gonna mess with their parking. To today, where it's like, it was like, yes, ADUs, small is beautiful. Like, Casita Coalition, you're totally right. And um, it's just an absolute sea change. Um, and it, 
it really makes me think about, you know, if you think about like sort of the old days of growth, there was a lot of conversations about like those, these old like growth coalitions, which were very like business oriented, if you will, to today where it feels much more groundswelly. I don't know exactly how to describe it. Um, it does sort of feel like a, a new era for, for planning and for housing. And maybe like the problems are just so acute and like the chick has come home to roost or I don't, I don't know what the phrase is, but um, it feels like there's like, it's sort of like a zeitgeist, like a confluence of many different things that it's leading to some of the reforms and successes that we, that we see today. Oh yeah. Well, <clears throat> no, that's all nice to hear. I mean, it's, it, it is remarkable. I was talking to a planner for some mountain West town and they had, they were adopting an AD ordinance and they were like, yeah, um, we introduced it and like, you know, most of the people who were at the hearing were apathetic. And then a few people were like very strongly in favor. And like this planner was like reflecting, like if we had done this 10 years ago, like it, it, there would have been like pitchforks and torches out. Right. But like the culture around this stuff has so changed that like, it's no longer, you know, I, 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 a great book on this, like the types of people who showed up at these meetings, I think, and dominated them until quite recently, neighborhood defenders. Um, right. There was this notion of like the person going to the hearing and fighting the housing is this heroic defender of the community. And now it's like the like discourse has just completely flipped, right? Um it's it's pretty remarkable. I um, you know, I I, I do think of like what we're up to, and this is like a, a little bit of a cautionary tale, maybe. It's like we're kind of the inverse of what happened in the 60s and 70s, right? Like in the 60s, 70s, there was this like massive reaction to like high modernist urban planning where the technocrats were going to make all the decisions and they were going to control the zoning and where the freeways went and the urban renewal, yada, yada, yada. There was this revolt against that, right? And I think we slightly overstate the extent to which that revolt was a sort of something that was lining up with someone's financial interest, as opposed to like a shift in how people thought about the issue, right? And I think that's, it's funny because like every now and then on Twitter, like some NIMBY will get really upset and be like, oh, the YIMBYs are all on the payroll of developers. Uh, and I'm like, no, yeah, there's maybe like, maybe two dozen YIMBYs in the entire world who like collect a paycheck at all. And it's probably coming from like some tech philanthropy. Um, it's <laughs> like, like, and then like thousands of people who are showing up at these meetings are like, they have full-time jobs and families and like hobbies. And they're doing this because they actually just believe like, in housing abundance and micro, you know, multi-mobility and, and, and cities being beautiful and welcoming. Um, it's been encouraging. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, taking it back to LA too, I think we were, we're in a place where things just got so bad that like, even, even the beneficiaries of the status quo were being hurt, right? Like, even if you're a homeowner in California, like your young adult children can't afford to stay near you. You can't afford to downsize in your community you leave your home and you see people living in tents and, you know, on the street. And so like things just got so bad that like, we can't really deny the problem. And, and, and yeah, just to bring it back to LA, I think that's the situation we're in now where why there's an appetite for frankly, some of the things that you proposed Emily in this report would have been maybe unthinkable 10 years ago, but now folks are like, okay, are we going to have like a big giant corruption scandal, you know, every five or six years and like, just not have like, you know, housing built in like uh, uh, an equitable way, or are we going to like actually sort of reckon with this issue and, and think of solutions? And, um, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist on the issue. I mean, just seeing that the progress that's happened over the last five years, right? I mean, I, I think we, we, we're, we're, we're really only in the very early stages of a completely new California planning paradigm. Yeah, it's really remarkable. And not just California, but I, I do feel like EMB ideas are really spreading across the country and more and more when I, I'm from Texas, right? So when I talk to the friends there, increasingly people all just say California NIMBY and they actually know what that means. Um, sometimes I still have to define NIMBY and NIMBY and all that. Um, but I know we've talked about how policies in the Mountain West and you know I think Arizona and Montana and Texas and there are all these things that are increasingly pro-housing and uh, you know the papers love to hate on California exporting its problems, but I think California is also exporting its solutions in this in this area. Um, yeah, and with LA, I I agree that it it's kind of gone to a a boiling point where the crisis is unignorable. Um, and I I think people do see the need for community wide or city wide planning versus planning on a project by project basis. Uh, we've sort of talked about this often on throughout this podcast, but like it is just so ridiculous that you end up fighting over one individual project, like Sarah said, when really the problem is that the city isn't being planned to accommodate this um, or the neighborhood plan is 20 years old. And talking to some planners when I was writing this report, that's a big frustration that people have is that they're not even doing planning, they're doing um, code checking, they're doing um, enforcement of plans that were made long before they started working at the city. Um, and yeah, I think people wanna do city planning again. So, so, so take us to the promised land here, right? Like ideas are being considered for reform. I think just today or last night, the council voted to, we're recording this on the 28th, uh, voted to exempt affordable units from the site plan review threshold. Is that right? Um, I think that's coming up soon. Coming um, up. But what they did yesterday, um, and granted, there's a lot to keep track of. The city council meets three times a week, so <laughs> many meetings. Um, but what they did yesterday was begin to codify executive directive one, which um, Mayor Karen Bass um, passed, um, or I guess initiated in December, um, which makes any project that's 100% affordable or a, a shelter, emergency shelter, um, eligible for ministerial review. And it's, I, was listening to um, Councilwoman uh, Katie Young Yaroslavsky talk about it during the uh, the presentation and Nithya Raman, and they were both saying that it is just like sped up development um, entitlement and development of affordable housing by a lot. Like they said that the median length of time it takes to to get an affordable housing project approved is now thirty seven days under ED one, which is like unbelievable. Um, you know, usually it's six months or years, or when all these projects were discretionary, members of the community could come fight and say, we don't want a building that's 100% affordable in our neighborhood, and maybe it would get delayed for years. So the fact that these are getting approved in just over a month is like 
I don't know, jaw dropping to me. Yeah, that's huge. I, I, I think another thing that you work through in the report and, and, and Sarah, I'd love to hear your perspective on this as someone who's looked at a lot of different cities is trying to depoliticize a lot of these. So like, of course, the ideal scenario here is we actually do planning, we update community plans, we update our zoning, we set rules, projects don't have to do discretion. But like short of that, right, like having fewer of these projects go to city council. Um, and, and I'll maybe like play devil's advocate a little bit here, right? Like, I think a lot of people would say, well, it's good that things go to the council. That person was elected. They understand the local context. Um, you know, why not let that person, you know, make the decision? Um, in the in the report, I think you suggest, hey, let's let CPC or, or you know, certain planning staff be the final arbiter on some of these projects but what's like what's the big upside there and and why why not say yeah cool let the let the person who was elected by the locals make the decision on this yeah and i i totally understand that perspective and why people would feel that way especially in, in areas that are historically marginalized where they members of the public haven't had as much power to express what they want to see in in, in land use and, and other aspects of city governance that the, um, the council member can be almost like a protector or a voice for that community. Uh, but what happens is it's still the wealthiest communities, the widest communities that have the loudest voices and are able to block projects. Um, and I think we see this in how affordable housing and, and just other multifamily housing projects have been distributed across the city in recent years, like where things get permitted. Um, and it would be most fair if there were standard rules that applied to the whole city. And that isn't meant to be a punishment to any community. It's just meant to have a, you know, just standards that the whole city has to comply with. And um, it would make it harder for some neighborhoods to get out of doing their part, um, which is, I think, the case now. Yeah, I to, I just totally agree with that and completely relate to it. And then in the, you know, in the San Francisco context, um, so uh, the western side of San Francisco tends to be lower density, tends to be wealthier, tends to be more exclusionary, and tends to be um, lower density. And then the eastern side is where, for decades, kind of all the rezoning efforts were concentrated on the eastern side of the city um, where more low-income households and BIPOC households have lived. And there was, you know, huge, um, hu a huge rezoning effort uh, that the city did around, was called the Eastern Neighborhoods. And it was basically like almost the entirety of the eastern side of the city. And um, you just, you see a lot of planning effort being put into places um you know sometimes because there's sort of like more land that can be converted either it's like industrial or you know like a base reuse or whatever which is the case of, of San Francisco so like there are good planning reasons why you might concentrate on those places but a lot of times it's because you know the the conventional wisdom is like oh you know the west side like we can't do anything about that they fight you know, they're they're off fighting 
fences between each other. Like you're never going to get any housing there. And, and it, it, it isn't fair, you know, and a lot of, um, to the planning department's credit, like a lot of this round of the housing element is now focused on the, on the West side of San Francisco. Um, um, because you can't just let, you know, like the, both the loudest voices and the the best finance voices win in in every single fight and basically like prevent plans from occurring in those places to begin with because the because the fight is going to be too difficult. Um, so I really relate to that. Um, and it also just makes me think about um, Jenny Schutz, who's with Brookings, wrote a really, really great book on on planning. And she talked a lot about like one of the things that needs to happen is that in places that there's the greatest demand, there should be ways of accommodating that demand. Um, and the high prices and um, you know, places on the west side of San Francisco or you know, Rockridge and in Oakland or other, you know, so-called high opportunity areas should be accommodating a sizable amount of growth because so many people want to live in these communities. Yeah, and also the west side of LA, funny enough. Well, maybe just the coastal side, maybe. What's going on in the west side? <laughs> <laughs> um, and just an example to that point that historically there have been neighborhood associations in LA that have been able to get payoffs from developers for agreeing to not block their project. So I think it's the La Mirada Neighborhood Association would get these big, like hundreds of thousand dollar payouts for saying, for initiating an appeal in a lawsuit and then ceasing that so that the project could go through. But the the deal was that that neighborhood association would get $250,000 to use however they wanted. And this is just like normal, a group of people. It's not even like a nonprofit or something. Um, so just like shocking who is able to exert power and, and who isn't. Well, I mean, just to like get just to get a little spicier on that, right? Like it's it's kind of a weird subversion of democracy, right? You have like all of these weird, like it, it, superficially, it's like, oh, we're gonna have this big public hearing and everybody's gonna be heard. But then one, like that the people who show up at those hearings are not a random cross-section of the community. And then two, there are all these weird backroom deals going on of like if you don't, you know, make a donation to my private group of people who are not elected, um, we're going to oppose your project. Or if you don't make a deal with my business group or my union, I mean, it just seems like a very sort of like, it seems like exactly the type of politicking that the like expanded public process was meant to like address. Like we're done with the backroom deals. We're done with the like, you know, unelected people sort of guiding the form of our, uh, of our community. But then it like had the opposite effect in a funny way of like turning that up to 11. It created these mechanisms where like far more of that could have happened than, you know, in a previous generation where there were, you know, fewer decision makers, uh, you know, on what could and couldn't get built. I mean, I guess it depends on who's making the backroom deal. You know, like I think in the, the bad old days, it was like, you know, developers, politicians and labor. It was like the growth mm -hmm. machine. And now one you know if we were playing devil's advocate one could argue like oh now community groups get to be you know part of these backroom deals it's just the the question of like who is benefiting like you know emily in your 
example of this wealthy community that um, basically is getting like shakedown payments like is that really the best use of public benefit funds for the community is that the most equitable like I would argue no it's just how do you how do you get to the point where government is representative and um rules are fair and, and um the you know whatever resources can be gleaned from these developments are shared in an equitable manner like the way we're doing it now is not that way um and but i think the question's sort of still open about like what way is that way yeah and it there's also this paper from michael manville and tanner osman i think um that is to that point talks about how members of the public really don't like when the council gets to usurp and make their own decisions that go against the rules so the paper basically says the more that the council steps in and says we're going to give a you know carve out a little exception give a variance change the zoning etc for a project the community views that as like maybe there are special interests that have captured government or that there was some backroom deal or something um, unsavory happening and it can be perceived negatively and so I, I thought that paper was just really motivating as I was writing this report to understand like there is a world where the zoning code is actually followed. Um, that world isn't Los Angeles currently, um, but you could develop plans that people stick to and then you regularly update the plans to meet the current conditions and, and um, you know, expected growth and, and all that. And um, yeah, I just, to your point, like there is a, a way that um, the community is satisfied without having to to do these um, backroom deals to your to use that phrase. Well, and, and I think this is a really important point. I mean, even in cases where there's not like real graft or corruption or anything shady happening, I think to a normal person, discretionary permitting looks like graft, right? I mean, it's like here okay, I thought something could be built on this lot. And now they're changing the rules to make an exception for this particular developer. And like, you know, putting my Yimby pro housing hat on, I'm normally favorable to that. But like, returning to how a normal person engages with these issues, that seems like kind of funky. Like, why are we making a whole bunch of exceptions to the rules? And it's like, well, there's broader reasons of like, yeah, well, the rules are really bad, and they're dysfunctional. And we all know that this is not going to get things that we we want built and or it's going to block things that we know we want but like still the mechanism for like resolving that problem looks like shady and i think it actually lowers public trust i mean you know i i don't want to say i'm sure there are other examples but like yeah like i'm trying to think of other examples where there's like we have laws and rules on the books and the notion is that they're almost completely protect protectual and the starting position for like a negotiation like you know, that's, it's just like plea bargaining has this quality too. And I think people are like, yeah, that's, of course, like plea bargaining is often used to like get to maybe like the correct, or, you know, sometimes it's used, you know, to force people to, you know, plead guilty to something they didn't do, but sometimes it's used to maybe get closer to a, a correct sort of 
resolution. But even even in cases where it's like correctly being used, it, it seems like corrupt and shady and just lowers public trust in the whole process. Yeah, and public trust in the city of LA could not be lower now. So <laughs> <laughs> if I have one piece of advice is that the city should try to recover and rebuild public trust in, in the council, um, which I think will be challenging. Like, uh, you know, Los Angeles is already not a very politically active city in comparison to San Francisco, which is maybe there's too much <laughs> political activism. Um, joking, I live in the Bay. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, given all the scandals, given what we've learned about council members in the past few years, um, it's like kind of beginning from rock bottom and that I hesitate to say that because it sounds so harsh, but um, you know the city can only go up from here in terms of um, you know developing a relationship with its residents. Emily, did you look more? I know you talked a little bit about Denver in the paper, but one of the things when you and I were looking at Denver that I was just so taken with is just the way they were. It was like a yes/no system. It was like yes, you can build it because it meets the rules. No, you can't. Um, and I was just wondering, did you look any further into that and sort of how the public perceives that system? Because there could not be a more clear system, um, I think, than the one that Denver developed. Yeah, I don't know how the public perceives it, um, but in in general, the system is a form-based zoning, not use zoning, use-based zoning. So that means that if a project fits the aesthetics uh, of the neighborhood, if it's the appropriate size or height or um, design, uh, that that is what determines if it can be built. And what we've seen in Denver, I think, is an increase in, in permits since that change was made. Um, but the city planning department makes virtually all the decisions about what can be made because they have this massive zoning code. It's like a book of you can build these 70 or something types of projects, but you can't build anything else. Um, and it's pretty rare that there are variances. And if there are, uh, you know, the city planning commission disagrees with the planning staff and then the city council disagrees with the, um, with the city, city planning commission. And it's really gives a lot of uh, authority to the zoning code and there aren't all these carves out carve outs it just says like it's it's pretty by the book like you said it's yes this fits or no it doesn't um which is like a completely different model and I think Houston is like that too where they say uh if the a proposed project agree is fits the municipal code they have to say yes but the city planning commission can't say no um and that is like the complete opposite of of LA and San Francisco. So there are just a lot of different models out there for, for how entitlement can be done. Yeah, I don't remember for, if it made it into the final report, but I know another model that we talked a lot about was uh, DC, where in DC, rezoning applications for specific projects, as I understand it, don't go to the council. The council adopts a future land use map as part of the their comp plan or their master plan, whatever they call it. And then if if the rezoning is compliant with what's in that future land use map, it, the CPC approves it. Um, and you don't 
th these projects don't go to council. They don't get hyper politicized uh, as much as you would expect. And, you know, partly as a result of that, a city like DC seems to be building like a lot more than peer cities, you know, on the Northeast corridor, um, which is, I mean, I, I would, I, you're saying Denver and it's funny to me because I was thinking in these cities, because they seem to have like basically kind of sort of functional zoning systems, it seems like NIMBY energies get shifted to other mechanisms like preservation, right? So like pres like DC and Denver both like regularly make headlines on, you know, City Lab and Streets Blog for having like, you know, jump the shark preservation fights. And I assume that's like, yeah, that's NIMBY's realizing, okay, we actually don't have like a lever to pull on like a zoning fight. So we'll pull like whatever other <laughs> levers available and try to say this gas station is actually historic please don't turn it into uh you know 400 units of housing right yeah i think I, the example in california is sequa um i don't know if that's what you're gonna say sarah or no i wasn't gonna say sequa i was gonna say um it's interesting about the idea of nimby energy and like thinking about what that is a about like if if you can't actually affect like the um the decision about whether the housing moves forward or not kind of what would yeah what what causes you to pour your energy into like a a fight about you know preserving a gas station um one of the conversations that emily and i had when we were looking at different case studies across the um, country was with um, somebody who was talking about San Diego and how San Diego is just really, it's shift, it has all the problems, all the state level um, framework problems of an LA or a San Francisco, but just radically different outcomes for a variety of different reasons. And they've moved much more to buy right system. And Emily, you write about it in this report. But I remember in one of our interviews, one of our interviewees was saying, you know, we're asked about like, what caused you know this change and he's like well we just stopped asking you know you just stop asking the question of do you want the development or not like that's not a question anymore that is asked of people and can be answered through this framework you know so I guess I guess all I'm saying is just interesting to me the idea like if you stop asking the question people stop answering the question and it stops being sort of a vehicle for that whatever that set of feelings is and then how much of it gets poured into historic preservation fights versus like how much of it gets poured into I don't know what else is is a um it's just interesting to think about yeah no and I think there is like that energy could be channeled into people getting really involved in community plan development or you know other other aspects that are more positive and like more democratic and moving in the direction of a beneficial city and I mean not necessarily NIMBY but like there should be means and in ways that people can be involved that aren't just deciding on every single project and going to five different hearings about one apartment building like that's not useful for anyone and probably no one really enjoys like the screaming matches that sometimes occur yeah I mean I think we all agree on this but like you you can do genuine outreach at the comp plan stage, right? Like you can do real focus groups and scientific surveys and hearings where like, I don't know, maybe you actually provide childcare and some donuts and coffee, right? Like to actually get normal people to come out. You can do that at the comp plan stage. You can't do that on a project by project stage because, you know, 
just by its very nature, you're it's going to be these ad hoc meetings that you know we we can't do a big robust planning process around them. So, you know, I I'm always saying you know this is not a question of like well do we give people a say or do we not? The question is like how do you give people say in a way that a makes sure that everybody actually has a say and b makes sure that like we're not just saying do you want this project or not right like do you want this specific project because that's like the to me like that's the most unhealthy form of of like public process you could possibly have and i think sarah you were kind of getting at this right like we host these meetings where like effectively the only thing you can kind of say is yes or no and then like maybe like you can you know technical planning term you can like bullshit about like specific reasons like well i think this is gonna cause traffic you know i, I remember when i was in uh one of the last projects I worked on in New York City, uh, we had somebody show up at a meeting and they didn't like the project. Um, it's the first time this ever happened. Um, and they were like, well, I'm upset about the traffic impact. And I'm like, oh, well, uh, this project did uh, the New York City version of CEQA. Uh, I'm happy to share the traffic impact study with you. Um, you know, we found negative negative declaration, uh, no impact. And they were like, oh, well, yeah, I don't, I don't trust that crap. You know, like that's all junk. And it's like, well, like, Okay, like, are you like, if you're actually, if 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 it's, if that's a valid concern, right? You should be somewhat interested in like what these technical experts in like you know transportation engineering thought about like trip generation and mitigation. Uh, but you know, like, effectively, we'd said to that person, you can come to this meeting and you basically can say no, and you and you, the game for you is to come up with clever reasons why you you know why we should take your no seriously, and and then we we are surprised when like these meetings have like a profoundly unhealthy dynamic right and i mean it makes for like comedic gold with like shows like parks and rec which is like only a very light parody of how these meetings can often go uh but like the sheer amount of like anger and division that these meetings cause i think is is vastly you know even above like the extent to which these things are mechanisms that slow down or stop housing and especially affordable housing especially affordable housing in high opportunity areas that's all bad but like I, I think there's like a broader sort of social dysfunction that flows out of this like this weekly ritual of like we're all going to get together and have like our like 90 minutes of hate um like yelling at each other um yeah it's very there's an emotional there's it's incredibly emotional and you have to think about why you know it it's I think part of it is like, like your home is so important. Like the concept of home and like feeling safe in your home is so important. And then change can represent physical change that you can see, not just people moving in now, which of course is another set of change that comes from a housing shortage, but physical change that you can see can feel incredibly destabilizing. It's like, there are things that I cannot control that are beyond, you know, that might impact my home. And I think it has to do with people's feelings about change and their feelings about safety, that that that's part of like what the trigger is. Like, Emily, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about, you know, oh, those people might move in. It's like, you know, whomever people have in their mind when they think about those people and they're going to move in and they're going to cause change. Um, and it it can just be like really psychologically destabilizing. And then there's all these rational reasons why that you could give like traffic or whatever um, to kind of 
put a framework around um, what those fears and anxieties are, but really I think it has to do with um, the kind of feelings of, of safety and like sort of um, what people have control of and what they don't. And it's, and there's a lot we don't control. I mean, we basically control almost nothing in our lives, right? Very, very, very little do we control. Um, it reminds me, I'll just tell briefly a story about one of the worst hearings I ever went to, um, which was uh, in San Francisco, there was a building that was being used as a motel in the Marina District, which is a wealthy area of San Francisco. And um, there's a nonprofit um, that was seeking to convert not the building exterior form, but the use from a um, basically a motel to being housing for youth, low-income youth transitioning out of foster care. And of course, there was a huge fight about this and the CEQA appeal and, you know, years and years and years, whatever. But the vitriol that was um, uh, extended towards the notion of low-income youth moving into the marina was, I mean, there were like a hundred speakers and people talking about, oh, oh, you know, you didn't do a CEQA analysis of Lombard Street um, because the America's Cup is coming and there's going to be a lot of traffic because of the America's Cup. And then you're adding, you know, the, these new youth to the neighborhood, like they're going to, you know, foster care transitioning youth are going to have, you know, a lot of cars. I mean, it's just like a completely outrageous articulations of, you know, people just spinning off all these insane things because they were afraid of who was coming in. That's, I mean, that was like baseline. They were like afraid of what it meant. They were afraid about what it was going to mean for, you know, their own safety. They, they, they had just, it was a like completely fear-based and all that energy, all of it was channeled into um, these hearings. And it was really sad. Like it was a very sad day for San Francisco listening to, you know, what people were saying when they got up to the dais for the three minutes to speak. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we deserve a better public process than that. And I think, you know, Nolan and, and Emily, both of you, what you're talking about kind of channeling some of the energy into spur for years, we talked about plans, not projects, plans, not projects, like public um, input should be into plans. It should not be into projects. Conforming projects should move forward where the discussion should be is about the plans. And if the option is to have a fight about the project, that option will be taken every single time. So I don't know. We need, we need something new. Maybe, maybe your paper will uh, send us in the right direction. Yeah, I, I really love that plans, not projects frame. And I think there's an appetite for it now because I think, you know, <clears throat> we are sort of at, I feel like we're at the end game of the of the current system and, and and there's this realization of, okay, what comes next? And this is why I think reports like, like Emily's report are so important is having those ideas that are ready to be taken off the bookshelf, right? When, when local LA legislators are ready, right? Like, hey, the, this is not like an unsolvable problem. In fact, with a few wonky entitlement process fixes, like, Actually, we can't like massively improve this system. 
Yeah, and I, I'm also thinking about how, you know, there's kind of a debate of like, does culture shape policy or does policy shape culture or chicken and egg? And I think this is an area where policy can shape the culture. You know, we talk about Houston, like base, I mean, things are kind of discretionary, but for the most part, people are not paying attention to like what's getting built. It's pretty laissez-faire. You could, for, you can build a duplex, you can build townhouses, sort of wherever. You can build like kind of tall buildings. And when I lived in Houston, people did not, well, besides one very significant example of opposition, otherwise people did not seem to care that much. Like it wasn't taking up so much people's mental energy and about individual projects. And then you move to the Bay Area and it's like every single project is a fight and people are paying so much attention to it. And like public participation and civic engagement are, are good, but we can also have a, a, a world where people are not riled up about every project that could be in their town. Yeah, you know, when I was in Houston uh, visiting, you know, I, I, I would always ask people why like, why does your city not have zoning, um, you know, to hear, like, their theory of it, you know, I had, like, my, like, over-intellectualized theories of, like, oh, well, like, maybe, like, Japan with the earthquakes, like, the regular hurricanes get you this culture of, like, impermanence, and we just regularly have to rebuild, um, you know, maybe there's, like, some, some, like, wonky feature of, like, Texas law, but over and over again, everybody just told me, they were, like, yeah, we just, you know, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you should just mind your own business, um, and I was, like, so, like resistant to that like rather obvious cultural explanation um um but like i that's got to be it right like I, I we were talking about san diego too like san diego is so similar in so many regards to la but then they seem to have these radically different like planning processes and it's like you know well why it's like oh well we just you know we, we'd like to see more infill happening here and we just think that's good for the city um and you're like you're like shaking them like no like give me like the give me like the grand like physical reality or economic reality theory of why you're doing this and it's just like oh you know just this is just the culture down here um <laughs> you know it's so funny I totally I totally agree with that and um a couple of years back I wrote this whole paper on reforming it wasn't related to zoning but it was um looking at the charter authorities in Oakland and kind of how the mayoral system functions or, or fails to function vis-a-vis -vis the council. They have a very um, interesting and complicated kind of hybrid. It's neither weak mayor nor strong mayor. Um, but a lot of people I talked to were like, well, the system worked totally fine, you know, when, I mean, I guess this would depend on your political predilections, but when Jerry Brown was mayor, it didn't matter because, you know, like, the council was aligned with him and the system worked fine. So it was all just about kind of who was in these positions. Like the actual structure didn't much matter because the the culture was such that, you know, people were aligned and things could move forward. And so, um, yeah, it's just really interesting how if you have the, if you have the right culture, you could have a bad system and everything's fine. And if you have the wrong culture, you could have a perfect system and everything will be messed up. <laughs> so it's just, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's a little bit of a cautionary tale for those of us who like to think at the systems level. When this is something that I think that is really important in in Emily's report is like a little bit of like the cultural history of LA, right? Like, I mean, the the title, the dysfunctional metropolis, is like riffing on like 
you know, the reluctant metropolis, the um, the fragments of metropolis, right? And like a key part of the cultural identity of LA is like LA as the anti-city, right? And like, so that's like, I think that's lurking in the background of like all Yumbi and transit advocacy and, multi, you know, bicycle advocacy, walkable advocacy here in LA is like, we're in this context where it's like this place was founded as we are the response to New York. We're the, we're the anti-city. Um, we are like, you know, the, like what, what's, you know, hundreds of suburbs in search of a city, right? Like that's LA's identity. That's how it like understands itself. And I think that's part of the challenge of that faces LA going forward is like, how do we like get ourselves out of this like adolescent phase and accept like, well, we're, we are a big major global city and you know, like it's not going to be your like eternal unchanging suburb with tract housing and strip malls. And I I'm pretty optimistic on this. I mean, I think groups like Livable Communities Initiative are like, you know, taking a different, I think so often urbanists have this like take your medicine approach of like, well, the, the world's on fire and the traffic's really bad and the housing's really expensive. So we're so sorry, we have to build some townhouses and some bike lanes and some bus lanes. And like, I think what groups like LCI and, and even, you know, part of the Yemi message is like, no, actually, this is good. Like, you should get excited about this. Like, your town doesn't have to, like, be this place that's, like, totally stagnant and stuck in, like, an urban design vision that doesn't, doesn't reflect reality anymore. Like, things, you know, like, Yimbies are always saying it on Twitter, right? Like, a better world is possible. And when you, when you start to think of it that way, like, reform stops seeming like this take your medicine, you know, all right, like time to go on a diet. It's like, no, this is an exciting like way that we can tee up like something much better. Um, Spur did this report. Well, I both of you know, we did this um, thing called the regional strategy a number of years ago, which was this idea of, um, you know, if we actually were effective at solving the problems that we seek to solve, like what would the Bay Area be like and what would it look like? And one of this, um, the cool projects that we did as part of that, my colleague um, Ben Grant did um, was this idea of, um, we called it model places where we took different places, different types of places that exist now in the Bay Area. And we talked about what would happen if you upzone them. And we did, and it was like an urban design um, exercise. And we ended up with all these like really beautiful pictures of like, okay, what does it actually look like if you upzone and like, you know, think about how nice it could be and it could actually be additive and it could be better. And um, we actually ended up commissioning some artists to do some artist renderings of some of these places. And I, it just really helped people visualize like exactly what you're saying. It's not take your medicine. Okay, we have to do this because otherwise we're all going to like fry and climate change, which, which is true, but it's also like, no, this this could be much better. Um, our, the places that we have right now could be better and they could be, be places that we enjoy more as a function of this growth and change. Yeah, and where there are more options. You know, a lot of people want a single family detached home and those aren't going away anytime soon, especially in LA. Like you could, there will still be those and there will be condos hopefully and, and townhouses and density and, um, you know, I feel like planning and zoning as they're done in California have really limited the options people have in terms of where they can live. Emily, I mean, so you've spent the last six months or so really, really focused on this. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there something that you changed your mind on over the course of doing this report? Oh my gosh. Um, so 
I feel like the easy answer is that I was kind of like a I thought I would like hate LA um or like have these like negative perceptions and I went to LA and I was like wait I kind of like it like I I I get it now and I feel like I um have quite a bit of appreciation for Los Angeles so that's one like easy answer um and that's also so people who read the report don't think I'm just a, a hater um but two like I um I come to this and local government and policy in general being really interested in community engagement like I think when I applied to grad school my one of my paper um, application essays was about how like I wanted to figure out how local governments could do community engagement and public participation better and that's really informed by a sense that like more is better and what I've learned I or changed my mind about is that it's not always better um and thinking about like how it's actually employed and and what are the strategies that can be used to do it better um I don't I think I um wrestle with that in my head a little bit of originally coming from this as like we should have more public participation and now um increasingly I'm like maybe we shouldn't have any um or have less uh so I don't have a a final opinion on that but it's definitely something I think about all the time yeah I think something that I I came away with a little bit more of an appreciation for I mean I mentioned that a couple times on this interview so far is just the why we ended up with the institutions that we have in LA and just you know the recent political you know, I mean I, LA has been on this kind of crazy roller coaster of dramatically different Lanny's planning institutions um and and realizing like the extent to which things have like we we haven't really had one land use planning system over the last uh 100 years and I believe you you cite a great paper on this the four planning regimes of LA just how like dramatically the yeah land use governance has fluctuated and I think there's there's like a, a case for optimism in that right of like some of the like ideas that you're proposing in the report like seem like big and radical now but like they're so timid relative to like the dramatic changes that have happened you know over the course that had happened over the course of the 60s and 70s or you know when LA was first like setting up a zoning system in the 20s and teens and um I think like having that section in the paper sort of quietly makes the recommendations that eventually come like seem less impossible like previous generations did like have the courage to say no we can radically rethink these institutions to reflect like our current needs and values and they did it right and like we should like be brave enough to be able to do the same thing yeah I'm glad you said that and I I hadn't specifically thought about it that way but I totally agree and just to give an example that um an example of like a really radical change that happened not that long ago is up until I think 1969, 1970, the city was zoned for 10 million people and they reduced the zoning capacity to 4 million people, which um, fun fact is what the population is now. <laughs> so we have reached that limit, but not that long ago, the city could have accommodated so many more people. Um, and it just, that's probably one of the like fun or not so fun facts that I always tell people about this report is, just that insane down zoning that happened and we can kind of start to reverse that 
I found that totally mind blowing. I was just like, oh, like my heart hurts. <laughs> it went the other direction. Agreed. Yeah. It almost makes you wonder if the housing shortage is a policy choice. Um, yeah. So let's look into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to I want to give you the last word here, Emily. Um, uh, I'll just quickly say uh, the report is uh, the dysfunctional metropolis. Let me get the subtitle right: reforming Los Angeles's land use planning and entitlement. Um, already making a splash. Folks in LA are already thinking about it. I encourage listeners to go check it out. Um, and of course, Sarah, I, I wanted to bring you into this conversation partly because you used to uh, work with Emily, but partly because you have work coming out on this, and hopefully, we'll discuss that uh, specifically in a future episode. Um, playing us out here, Emily, what top line, somebody who is in a position to move the ball on these issues in LA, what, what do you, what do you want them to take away from this report? Gosh, that's a harder question than it should be, but just, I, I think something we've explored in this conversation is it, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and to think about how the current system incentivizes bad behavior like the corruption we've seen and also bad outcomes um and to think about how there's a there is a world where land use policy is encourages good government good governance and it doesn't require corruption to get anything to happen and also creates a better city and um doesn't have to be decided at the project by project level with with screaming matches like sarah described um i think that's probably my my um, elevator pitch. Emily Jacobson, thanks for joining Abundance. Thank you. This was so fun. I'm glad I was finally on the podcast. And thank you, Sarah. Oh, my pleasure. It was so great to talk to both of you. And Emily, I'm just so excited for this paper. It's, it's wonderful and everybody should read it. <laughs>